you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So yes, we read in the passage from 1 Timothy chapter 3, that is where we are going to spend our time this morning, verses 8 through 13 is the full passage of the qualifications for deacons, but today we are going to be focusing on verses 8 through 10. One thing I want to draw your attention while you're turning there is I want to draw your attention to this book right here, Deacons, by Matt Smithhurst. It's part of the Nine Marks series. This book is incredible. If you've never read anything or listened to Matt Smithhurst, he is... Um, he's incredibly smart, well-researched, well-versed in Scripture, and he condenses um, the office of biblical deacons down to, I don't know, less than 200 pages. There is a cardboard box in the back over here underneath the fire hydrant. Fire hydrant. What do you call that thing? It's not a hydrant. Extinguisher. Good Lord. Uh, the fire extinguisher. And so we bought 60 of them and want to give them to you as a gift. So we would ask that at least one per household to start off. Um, And then if we have leftovers and more people want them, say in the weeks to come, you're welcome to them. I want to ask you to take one, especially if you're a member of Redeemer. Take one and read it. Pray through it. Uh, Begin to um, really consider the words. Consider everything that is being uh, mentioned in this book. And then also before next Sunday, because next Sunday is going to be the doozy. That's where we get to talk about should women serve in the official capacity as deacons. And, and so you're definitely going to want to read Appendix 1, which has my favorite line in the entire book. And it says this, opening line. If you flipped here before reading the rest of this book, shame on you. Return to the table of contents and try again said he was kidding but that's exactly where most of us are going is okay can women serve in the role and the capacity as deacons so every lady in here just perked up and was like i'm getting a book so grab one and we will talk about it next week um last week we did start the series on deacons biblical deacons we'll talk about it again today and next week will be the last of it And then the next Sunday after, we will get back into the Gospel of John. And that will conclude just really this introductory phase of these building blocks of values, training, and deacons. And by way of reminder, this is really just a kickstart. This doesn't mean it's complete just because we preach some sermons on these things. That means we're done, we've finalized everything, we've arrived, we've accomplished all our goals. That's not at all what is being conveyed. But we want to at least lead from the pulpit on how Scripture drives these things for us. And so last week we hit on the beginning phase of really where, what is the blueprint? The blueprint of what it means to be a deacon. And we went into the book of Acts and we saw this shortly after the Holy Spirit fell upon the church and you saw the Jews being converted. The church came together really in this beautiful way, having everything in common. Nobody was in need. And it was really easy because everybody was a Jew converted Christian. Everybody had the same common background, the same kind of story, if you will. 
except for the fact that you had some Jewish uh, converted Christians and then some Hellenist or Greek Jew converted Christians. And then you begin to see really the cultural tensions make its way into the church, causing some sort of rift, if you will, and people beginning to question and wonder, okay, are they serving the um, Hellenist or the Jewish widows more than they are the Greek widows? And maybe something's not right here, but it's causing tension. And so the apostles saw the problem. And because the apostles were commissioned directly by the Lord right before he ascended to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth and bear witness about him, they could not be deterred from that mission. And in that moment, they needed to raise up people who could handle the ongoing work and ministry of serving the widows, serving tables. They didn't discount it or say that serving tables or widows was a bad thing or an inconvenience. It was something that needed to happen, but it was something that needed to happen at the hands of what would then become, I would say, a blueprint for deacons in the church. And the apostles were then free to continue on in the ministering of word and prayer in Jerusalem. Of course, if we fast forward in the book of Acts, when you get to chapter 7 or to chapter 8, the gospel then goes beyond Jerusalem, heading on into Judea and Samaria. And then from that point on, after Paul's conversion, you see then the gospel going to then the ends of the earth, or that is the known world at that point, all across the Mediterranean. Paul plants all sorts of churches, one of them being a prominent church in the city of Ephesus. And in this city, he also um, raises up, he raises up a disciple, Timothy, has Timothy be really kind of the head church guy there, and has Timothy raise up elders and raise up deacons and address certain doctrinal matters. And as a help to Timothy, Paul writes a letter to the church of Ephesus to help give a, a groundwork to sound theology, sound doctrine, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live the Christian life, what it means to be a husband, a wife, a parent, a co-worker, if you will. And so then he instructs the church in that way. And then just like the very beginning of Acts where problems began to arise in the local church, you begin to see problems rising among the church that is now spread throughout the known world. False teachers, infighting, all sorts of structural problems. And so Paul then addresses Timothy personally in what, what is known as the pastoral epistles. This is the book of First Timothy. And so Paul is writing to Timothy. We get to kind of come in, steal the mail, and read the letter and get a sneak peek at what Paul is instructing Timothy. But he instructs him pastorally in how he is to kind of build up the structures and how he is to deal with false teaching and doctrine within the church. The book of Ephesus, or the book of Ephesians, was written to the church at Ephesus around 60 AD. And then Paul's letter to Timothy came somewhere between 62 and 66 AD. So that letter was written to the church at first. There was awareness of the book of Ephesians. But then later on, Paul addresses Timothy, giving him instruction on how to handle the situation in Ephesus. 
And so this is where we begin to see more pointedly elders and deacons within the church. And not just elders as in old people, I don't know how to say this, or deacons as in terms of just people who have a servant's heart and can fold chairs, but no, in terms of offices or position, having some authority within the church. And these offices, these people are to meet a certain qualification that will match the intensity of the heresy and the apostasy of the age. There are those who are creeping into the church, wreaking havoc, doing whatever they can to destroy the church. And Paul is saying, I want you to match that intensity in the very least and provide this godly structure that will help protect the church and make her vibrant. If you were to thumb through a church history book or a theology of church history, one thing you'll notice throughout history is that church structure and leadership is constantly ebbing and flowing as far as what is the right kind of model, what is the right kind of structure. But what we see immediately in the Bible is what would be called a two-tiered system. That is, you have the elders and then you have the deacons. Assuming, of course, you already have the congregation. And so this is what we're going to be seeing today. That the elders and the deacons, as we see here in Scripture, are the official positions. The place of which office is held within the local church. And so what Paul is presenting to Timothy is what we are striving to attain at Redeemer. And so far we have officially elders, which synonymously goes along with overseers or bishops, if you hear those words being used. But we do not officially have in office deacons. And so today is going to begin really the two-part breakdown of the qualifications of deacons from 1 Timothy 3. And so we'll begin to see biblical deacons and what they must be. Biblical deacons and what they must be. Breaking this down into two, two simple points. The first one is in the first couple words of chapter 8. Now, biblical deacons are inseparably linked to elders. Biblical deacons are inseparably linked to elders. And the second break in this message is going to be in verses, the rest of verse 8 through verse 10. Biblical deacons, what they must be. Biblical deacons, what they must be. So first, biblical deacons inseparably linked to elders. Deacons likewise, verse 8. That volume picked up really quickly. Deacons likewise. A deacon, someone who serves in this capacity of deacon, as maybe we mentioned last week, the word deacon in its simplest form means servant. We see it throughout Scripture in verb form and noun form. But in particularly, this is one who has the responsibility to care for the needs of the believers, someone who helps and aids in the office of the elders. But as disciples, as disciples of Jesus, one of the marks or one of the pieces of DNA that makes us a disciple is that of a servant. This isn't exclusively for the office of deacon, or even an elder, 
But this is the mark of all Christians for all time, all disciples. Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus tells us, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Mark 9, 35, And he sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Mark ten forty three, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Jesus called the disciples to a life of service. Why? Because he himself is the chief servant, the chief deacon. Jesus is not only the chief shepherd and chief overseer of our souls, the chief elder, pastor of the church, but he is also the chief deacon. He is the one who serves us and still serves us to this day. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 gives this beautiful example and illustration of Jesus taking on the form of a servant, laying down his life for us in every way. And even today, he serves us by aid of his Holy Spirit and by aid of his divine word. And so being a servant is the mark of being a disciple. Now, in terms of the office that is held within the church, we see that more specifically here, of course, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. But we also, just to give us another snapshot, a couple more snapshots, is in Philippians 1.1, where Paul writes, saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Paul is addressing as a servant the elders, the overseers, and the deacons, those who are in those positions in that office. Romans 16.1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. I should have saved this one for next week, but I'm just going to whet your appetite. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a deacon of the church at Sincrea. So the debate here is that Phoebe, who is a woman, is addressed as a deacon, not one that has a servant's heart or is just a servant in terms of being a disciple, but one who is addressed as a deacon of a specific local church in a specific capacity of um, work and service. She is the one who is being addressed, who seems to be sent out by the church as an official church ministry worker on behalf of newly formed and developed church plants and its network. And so there's the debate for that. But this goes to show that deacons not only have the verb form, but the noun form, and in particularly the office. And so deacons likewise. This word likewise ties deacons to elders. Notice it comes immediately after the qualification for overseers, for elders. Paul did not address first deacons and then say, elders likewise, you be this way. No, the deacons are put in place strategically to be more than task doers. They are the very hands and feet of whatever 
the elders need, whatever the church is needed, so that the elders especially can remain focused on the task of word, prayer, feeding the flock, leading the flock, protecting the flock, caring for the flock, especially at Ephesus. And so elders and deacons are complementary yet distinct roles. Complementary yet distinct roles. Distinct in three different ways. Office, persons, and function. Office. Elders have a position of authority over the local church. Deacons are subject to the authority of the elders. Not blind subjection. The ultimate authority and ruler is Christ, right? But is in the order of things, the elders are the overseers and deacons operate under the function of the elders. That is the office. In terms of persons, elders are men only, qualified men only. Deacons are for men and quite possibly, keep wetting that appetite, and quite possibly women, if not, in the very least, the wife of a male deacon. And that is not so for the office of elder. So that's the persons. The function Elders must be able to teach. This is something that is not required of a deacon. They must understand God's word, but they are not required to be able to teach. They're not required to do that, but they have generally functioned throughout church history in these few ways. In the realm of administration, caring for the physical needs of people in the church, doing visitation and counseling. Administration, physical needs, visitation and counseling. So you see this relationship between elders and deacons is not like oil and water, but very complementary, yet very distinct. And so you capture a glimpse of both offices at work in the church of Ephesus, where Paul instructs Timothy regarding widows as one example let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows he says in chapter 5 verse 16 so the church cares for those who are truly widows by way of leadership of qualified deacons it doesn't mean that elders have no part have no care for widows but in terms of actually servicing the church in the way that we see in chapter 5 that is going to ultimately be left up to the deacons. And Paul then follows this portion in chapter 5, not separating the two of them. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So you see this tie together at the end of chapter 5 that the widows are to be truly cared for and that the elders are to focus on the preaching and teaching of God's Word. They are inseparable in their value and worth and need within the church. They're both vital. So elders and deacons are vital. One cannot rightly function without the other. But it is without question of most importance that word and prayer take the highest priority within the church no matter the cost. You can have a church with elders and no deacons, but you cannot have a church with deacons and no elders. 
Because then you have it backwards on what the priority is and the function is of the church, which is God's Word and prayer. So deacons at the end of the day keep the main thing the main thing. Even, I would even say deacons saying to the elders, hey, don't cross over here. I've got this. Stay focused on what God has called you to do. Mark Dever says this, you don't want people serving as deacons who are unhappy with your church. The deacons should never be the ones who complain the loudest or jar the church with their actions or attitudes. Quite the opposite. You don't want to nominate deacons who don't recognize the importance of the ministry of preaching and teaching, but people who are anxious to protect it. More broadly, you want the most supportive people in the church to serve as deacons. So when you're considering who might serve as a deacon, look for people with gifts of encouragement. So deacons, likewise, inseparably linked to elders. And in such, what is it then that they must be? If they are not elders, then what is it that they must be? We see in the rest of verses 8 through 10. Deacons must be. And I just want to stop for a moment right there on the must be. This is necessary because it's not, well, consider these things. And, you know, if a deacon meets some of them and not all of them, that's okay. Or maybe if they meet 90% of it. No, they must be these things. There's no question about it. And why? Because the qualifications here, just like we would see even for elders are a reflection of God's holy character. His holy character. They're a reflection of what also a deacon must do. So not only are they to be this way, but them being this way then is a springboard for how they do things within the church. And I want to draw your attention to this reality. That everything that is laid out as far as the qualifications for deacons is everything that is required to be a Christian. There's no separation here. We're all held to this standard, but we're talking more explicitly about someone who holds this office not only as qualified by character, but competent, able to uphold the tasks at hand. Let me read another quote from Smethurst in this book, Deacons. Pastor, when eyeing future deacons, look for godly saints who see and meet needs discreetly. They don't need or want credit. At their own expense, they sacrifice. And without being asked, they take the initiative to solve problems. Warning signs in a deacon candidate then will include not merely a tendency to be quarrelsome, but also a tendency to be disorganized or unreliable. This is why I said above the, that character, though, is the main thing. It is not quite everything. A godly member who regularly flakes out or never returns emails or always needs to be told what to do is not yet a good fit for the office. A deacon must be reliable, neither angling for authority nor needing to be babysat. In essence, a deacon should be a safe pair of hands. Show me a church with distracted pastors and a derailed mission, and I will show you a church without effective deacons. A deacon must be dignified. Dignified, that is honorable, 
worthy of respect, of good character. It's the idea of lifting the mind from these cheap, lowly, showy things that the world can ultimately counterfeit and reproduce themselves to something higher, something more majestic, divine, things that point us to where Christ resides in the heavens. That's what it means to be dignified. And they are to be dignified because if you think in terms of administration, physical needs, or visitation and counseling as far as administration, what kind of person do you want handling church finances? What kind of person do you want to give the keys to the building to? What kind of person do you want to have access to those things? Someone who can't even handle their own finances? Or is unwilling to even give to the church? Thinking about physical needs. Paul tells us in, in chapter 5, 11 and 12 that not all widows are to be served in the church. There are some who don't qualify for being served. And a deacon must know how to honorably and with all integrity hold that biblical line with humble courage. This person cannot just be a pushover, emotional in their ways. They must be able to understand rightly what it is that God has called them to do and allow God's Word to drive them. And they must do it with all dignity, with all honor. It's hard to turn people away and still remain honorable at the same time. And this is what a deacon must do. In regards to visitation and counseling, this is kind of the flip side of things. There's a call to honor those who are truly widows in chapter 5, verse 3. So a deacon at the same time must be one who knows how or can visit people, especially the poor, and treat them with honor. And commend them for the love that they have of God. Somebody who builds up the body. Who encourages the body. It's never about them. So we need deacons who can visit folks. Who can honor them. Who can be a trusted voice and ear to sensitive information. We cannot have, and we'll get into this, loose tongues. And so a deacon then next must be, or not be, double-tongued. That's that deliberate deceptiveness. Pretending one set of feelings while acting under the influence of another. Being pretentious. Someone who even reveals secrets. One of, my, one of the things that just gets me about the South, and I'm thankful that we're just barely above the Mason-Dixon we have sweet tea, which is nice, and we enjoy biscuits and gravy around here, which is really nice. But I'm also thankful that we're north of the Mason-Dixon because one of the things that drives me crazy is passive aggression. I feel like if you say the phrasing, bless your heart, you're automatically disqualified from any office within the church. That is like the most passive-aggressive statement anybody in the South could ever say because I'm like, I know what you're really saying. And it's not bless your heart. But that's that idea of being double-tongued. You have that face. You're smiling. Everything looks good, well put together. But underneath, you're, you're scheming. You're plotting. You're deceitful. 
So a deacon must be this. Paul actually addressed the church in Ephesians 4.29 saying, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So Paul's instructing Timothy, Hey, that letter I sent you several years back, this is what I instructed for the church to be. You need to go find those who are living this out. Church, you need to look for those who have no corrupting talk coming out of their mouths, who are ones who build up. Do you have a tendency to slander others, to speak ill of them in private, to gossip? That'll be one of the interview questions for any of those who want to be a deacon. Nothing really kills a church like gossip or slander. A deacon must have the courage to call out gossip and slander and not participate in it. It's not always something that just gets bumped up to the elders. Well, elders, you deal with it. No, we need deacons on the front line calling out sin and stopping it. We need deacons who their yes means yes and their no means no. We don't need deacons who are double-tongued and just buy into the gossip and the slander of the church, but no, who are a stopgap, calling it out. And they're held in such high esteem with the body that they know that the body knows that this person or these people are not going to tolerate such behaviors and actions. We're talking about holiness, church. (laughs) Holiness. The enemy, look, is called the father of lies. And if the deacon is deceptive in speech, then they are an easy conduit for the enemy to, in, to corrupt the entire body and even a slow death among the elders at the elder table. I mean, how many times have we heard of churches imploding because of the deacons? And granted, it's not always the deacons, but slander and gossip usually seem to be one of the problems. So where are you? And I'm speaking to those who have kind of maybe in their own minds think, man, I think I want to be a deacon, or you have voiced you want to be a deacon. So these questions are for you to evaluate. And for those of you who have no aspiration to this position, to start thinking about others within the body, who are those who don't, who are not double-tongued? Who are they? And if you aspire to this, are you double-tongued? And if so, it's time for you to repent. A deacon must also not be addicted to much wine. I heard my son laugh, (laughs) to not much wine, (laughs) when we were reading the passage earlier. This is a, a continuation, giving that close attention to, devotion to drinking too much wine. It's not saying don't drink wine at all, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have wine in uh, the Lord's Supper. But it's the idea of drunkenness and that desire to always crave after that, to be that. This word addiction is the same word that you see for devotion. We see it in chapter 1, verse 4, pertaining to those who devote themselves to different doctrines. These are the false teachers that Paul is addressing and calling Timothy to uh, 
combat. You see the same word, so not only in chapter 1, verse 4, but chapter 4, verse 11, where Paul charges Timothy to a devotion to the public reading of Scripture. And so here is the negative connotation of that word in the, in the letter of 1 Timothy. And so it's this addiction to, this craving for, this desire for being drunk. Substance that alters the mind, makes you lose control, has a tendency to loosen the tongue, loosen behaviors to the level of dishonorable and reproachable. Again, Paul addressed this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. This isn't going to be any new news. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That is the mark of a deacon. We saw that last week in Acts chapter 6. What was one of the requirements for the seven chosen? That they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? Even in Acts chapter 2, everybody's like, okay, all these apostles here seem like they're drunk with wine and they had to defend them. No, no, no. They're drunk with the Holy Spirit, not drunk with wine. It's only 9 a.m. And I think that's the sort of charge that we need to have among our deacons is that they are drunk with the Holy Spirit. That they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Walking in step with the Holy Spirit. A unique role, something that Smethurst points out in his book, is that deacons are shock absorbers. He calls them shock absorbers in the church. They are doing this or hold this position because they are helping to preserve unity and even peace within the body. One who is addicted to much wine cannot possibly absorb any tension or any rising disunity within the body. Smethurst describes the deacons as linemen, like on a football team, absorbing that shock, absorbing it all for the sake of protecting the elders so that the elders can focus on what they need to do. Being a football player, that makes sense to me. And I'm also aware of what linemen are not able to do if they're still drunk and trying to play football at the same time. That's college football for you. Linemen, good linemen, are to be devoted not to the constant party scene and constantly being drunk and constantly hungover, constantly late to practice, constantly really questioned as to whether or not they can be reliable, but they are to be men who are sharp, intensely focused. I know the stereotype of linemen are just kind of bit like big, dumb animals. <laughs> but if you've, ever, if you've ever seen what a lineman has to do to prepare for a game, they need to know all the defenses. They need to know that which way people are going to line up. They need, they need to know every play call. They need to know where the quarterback is going to be once the ball is snapped because they won't be able to see him, but they need to know. They need to know where the ball is going to be. They also need to be able to communicate. And in a matter of seconds, what you see on TV between the, the 
the team breaking out of their huddle and getting on the line of scrimmage and the snapping of the ball, there is a ton of processing, thinking, and communication that is taking place at the lineman level so that the play can happen. A team is only as good as its linemen. So it takes those sorts of devotions and late night film, um, hours of practice. So are you one who is addicted to the task of the church and her needs and what Christ wants? You're able to remain sober-minded in difficult situations? Or are you one who is addicted to the task of the bottle? Unstable, unpredictable. We're not really sure if we can rely upon you. And a deacon must not, next, be greedy for dishonest gain. This is pertaining to being shamefully greedy for material gain or profit. Again, at no surprise, Paul hits on these things in the letter to the church of Ephesus, chapter 428. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This deacon is not to be operating and functioning and speaking and acting and behaving in such a way that it is for their own personal gain. We need deacons who are faithful, able to get things done, do things in a timely fashion. Do them without elders or the church having to constantly second-guess motivations. It is exhausting and tiring to wonder if somebody's going to come through. That, doesn't, that happens in any capacity. If you're a, a boss at work wondering if your staff is going to do something, right? We all get that to a degree. Parents wondering if your kids are going to follow through or not, right? On the church level, Wondering, will the deacons follow through? Or are they doing this for themselves? We need deacons whose primary concern is the church and not themselves. Being a deacon or an elder is not a position for people to fulfill their personal callings in life. We live in a society where everyone, every company, every institution needs to bow to the personal gain and wants of anyone and everyone who comes in. And they're going to be held accountable to it. The church cannot and must not operate that way. The office of elder and deacon is not a stepping stone to move up in the church, a way to jockey for position and authority and power and recognition. It's not a platform to flaunt your skills and have people be impressed with who you are. It's not a place to prove to yourself that you can do it. We're not looking for you to prove anything to yourself. And it's also not a place of entitlement. Well, I deserve this. I've been doing this. I've been doing that. Then this isn't the place for you. Being a deacon is not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about His glory, the health of His church, the good of others. A deacon is to truly be a reflection of the love 
of God and love of neighbor. And not some personal version of God. My, here's my personal version of God and, my, and me loving myself as thy only neighbor. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's about her, capital H, the church. If Christ emptied himself, he didn't consider all glory and, and praise to come to him alone, if he didn't consider robbing the Father of that, but instead serving the church, giving his life for her, not for his own personal gain and selfish wants, but for the sake of the glory of God and for the sake of the bride, then we are to follow in that example. And we must have deacons who follow in that example. And we must have deacons, verse 9, who hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So what has been made known, what has been revealed, what has been made clear regarding the gospel, this is the mystery revealed. And to have a clear conscience about it is to have no failings, no moral failings or convictions that may put you into question in regards to the gospel that you preach and also practice. But to flesh out a little bit more this mystery. Again, Paul writes this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Here's what he says. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let me read that again. Here is the mystery, chapter 3 of Ephesians. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promises of Christ Jesus. He goes on, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of, of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for every, everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Go back and reread that in your free time. Ephesians 3, 1 through 10. The mystery revealed. And so deacons are to hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Something that this church has already been aware of. And this mystery revealed is this. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're joint heirs in the kingdom of God. It's not just the Jews only. That they are members of the same body. They're not disjointed. They're not dismembered. They are of the same body. And they are partakers of the promises of Christ. All the promises of the forefathers are also the promises of the Gentiles by faith in Jesus. 
And then that means also that they have access to the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's not left just for the Jews, but for all by faith in Christ. And what is theirs as well? What is this mystery? It is the plan that was hidden for ages. Hidden but now made clear and plain. Jesus in the Old Testament is the servant that was foretold. I'm not going to read them, but if you go to Isaiah 52, 13, you see that Jesus is the servant who would die. If you were to go to Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 7, you will see that as a result of the servant who comes and dies, that Gentiles, the nations, will come to God and know Him and worship Him. So Jesus is the servant foretold in the Old Testament. This is the mystery revealed. Jesus confirms this in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 21, where He reads a scroll in the hearing of the people from the prophet Isaiah He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon Him. And He began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is declaring in his ministry on earth that he is the servant that was foretold in the Old Testament who would come, who would die, who would draw the nations to himself. Here he stands and now he dies, he resurrects and his spirit is poured out and it is through his spirit that the service of Jesus carries on. Jesus gives us a model for service. We see this in, as He washes the disciples' feet in John 13, that they are to continue in doing these things. And so Paul says that this mystery is revealed so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. And I would say through the church and by way of deacons' service in the church these things are also made known. Not just me as an elder standing up here preaching and proclaiming God's Word, but also in the active service and life of the deacons in the church. Deacons operate, and this is what makes deacons unique and separate from any other service or servant outside of the church. A deacon operates in and under the resurrected power of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Deacons pull for unity among the church, especially among Jew and Gentile. You see that in Ephesians, uh, I believe chapter 4, 2 or 4, I can't remember, where the dividing wall of hostility is torn down between Jew and Gentile, right? The two men, Jew and then Gentile, have now been made one man in Christ Jesus. Deacons now serve in a capacity to help continue to pull unity Deacons continue to follow in the example of Christ's service to the marginalized, to the poor, the widow, the orphan. And deacons ultimately show themselves while they are held in a higher position that they are to be servants of all and continue to wash the feet of the disciples. 
the mystery of the gospel of Jesus being made manifold through the church is also made manifold through the service, or manifest, excuse me, through the service of the deacons. A deacon needs to understand that everything they do has an eternal purpose. It's linked to the greater narrative of the gospel, of scripture. This is rich. This has deep meaning. It's not just running errands and paying bills and checking the mail. It's much more than that. So understanding the bigger picture of the Bible doesn't mean you have to teach it. Doesn't mean you have to know every single thing. But it is necessary for a deacon to know that faith in Christ alone is what is necessary to be saved and it is what is necessary to serve in the church in this capacity. And that sort of knowledge, what does it do to a deacon? It humbles them. If a deacon rightly understands this mystery now revealed, they will never walk around with some form of pomp or arrogance. If they do, they need to be called to repentance. But if they keep this in mind, they will never make much of themselves. And so before you flippantly decide you want to be a deacon, you need to consider for a moment if you are pursuing this because of the beautiful mystery that you first hold dear or because you feel you ought to be seen and known by others. You want to know how to spot someone who holds the mystery with a clear conscience? They will lay their entire lives down for the sake of the church. They'll lay, they'll lay down their liberties, their status, their personal wants and desires. They will give it all for the sake of Christ and her body. They'll do whatever it takes to be ambassadors for Christ, to be innocent, blameless amidst a perverse and twisted generation. They will pursue holiness because they love Jesus more than sin. They love Jesus more than themselves. They love the church more than anything. And they'll do whatever it takes for others in the body to sit at the feet of God's Word and the teaching of the elders so that they too might know the wonderful, unsearchable riches of Christ's glory. And so this is what a deacon must be. And Paul says in 10, they need to be tested first. There's no formula for testing here. Like, hey, Paul, it'd be nice if you... Give us a model for how that's supposed to happen. But it would require a period of time of observing one's life, the way they conduct themselves, whether or not they live out these qualifications without even being given the office. I mean, the church at Ephesus has already had this letter, the book of Ephesians, for years now. And so now, the question is, who has been living this out? And has this been observed among the body? And you let them serve as deacons after you test them if they prove themselves blameless. So if they prove themselves blameless, then let them serve as deacons. Whatever that testing may be. And that word blameless is pertaining to one who cannot be accused of anything wrong without accusation or, should we say, above reproach. One who is 
blameless, above reproach. Nobody in the church body has complaints about them. Nobody questions their character, their integrity, their ability to do things. They're humble. And when they, when they understand or they've been called out for doing something wrong, they make correction. When they've been called out for sin, they make repentance. They're not perfect human beings in that way, but they're human beings who pursue, relentlessly pursue Christ and are above reproach. And so it's necessary that a deacon be in good standing both within and outside the church body. The goal is not just having good behavior and looking the part, but looking and behaving like Christ as they're going to be the ones who lead in the areas of administration, the caring for physical needs, and, the, and really ongoing care and counsel within the church. The church. Then, and only then, Will they serve as deacons? In what areas of the church have you been involved? Most of you have been around here for quite some time. So what does your involvement in the life of the church look like? And if your life in the church was a test, how do you think the test is going? What do you think people would say of you in regards to these initial qualifications? The goal of this is not to bring condemnation or guilt or shame, but it's calling us to a higher calling in Christ, to holiness, to being like Christ. If you go, man, I I fall short here, I fall short there, there's no way. It doesn't mean that you just kind of like sink into the fetal position and never come out of it, like sink into a dark corner of the room and just waste away. But no, it's to press in. Maybe you need to repent. Then repent. Begin turning, looking more like Christ. Make Christ the object, the aim of your behaviors, of your conduct, of your way of living. And begin to see that this process here, when when we are pressed against these qualifications... It's a sanctifying process. There's nothing more sanctifying than having your job description being written in inspired Scripture. (laughs) And who you are by the divine Word of God. It constantly holds you accountable. So who among us is ready and willing to answer the call to being a deacon? You've sat and heard the biblical weighty call of a deacon... Maybe it terrifies you. Maybe it just charges your soul and makes you excited. You might be thinking, is this still worth it? Is a calling which requires so much scrutiny and courage worth it all? Allow these words to sink in and and to be the push you need to make known the desire you have to serve in this way. And this again comes from Smithhurst's book, And this will conclude our time. Deacon, your office has an expiration date, but your status as the king's servant will never end. Why would it? Life in his service is perfect freedom. Your current role as deacon is just an internship for an eternal future in which you will see his face together with all his servants world without end. 
Revelation 22. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. May Jesus, the ultimate deacon, return in glory soon. The song of Isaiah has been fulfilled, but there is an encore coming. 